0: As we go to open God's Word together, let's ask Him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, we we pray that You would grant that we would hear and read and learn and inwardly digest these things, that through the comfort of Your Holy Word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of eternal life, which You have given to us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated, and please turn with me in God's Word to the book of Mark, chapter 9, Mark chapter 9. If you're visiting with us, we're glad to have you here this morning. We've been considering a series through the book of Mark, and we've come to chapter 9, verses 9 through 13 in our series. Uh, You'll find the book of Mark on page uh, 1074 of many of our Pew Bibles. Uh, Mark is the second book of the New Testament between Matthew and Luke. And so our text for this morning will be chapter 9, verses 9 through 13, but to remind us of the context, we'll begin our reading at verse 2 of chapter 9. So Mark chapter 9, beginning our reading at verse 2, and let's pay careful attention for this is God's own word. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how was it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Well, last week we considered the glory of the transfiguration, that event on the mountain that left such an impression on the disciples. Um, we, we thought about how Peter recounts what he saw in 2 Peter 1, 16 and 17 when he says, "...we were eyewitnesses of his majesty when he received glory, honor and glory from the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased." We talked about the impression it made on Peter. We talked about the impression it made on John when he records in his gospel in John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so we see them having this glorious experience, getting, as we said last time, this glimpse of eternity while time is still running. Uh, This vision of heaven on earth before the Lord's return. Um, And they've seen this vision and now they're coming down from the mountain. Uh, We sometimes talk about these kinds of mountaintop experiences in our own lives where you go to a retreat or a conference and you have what seems like a very moving spiritual experience and then you come back down to ordinary life and try to make sense of how I feel now versus how I felt then. Um, and if that's true for us when we have a significant spiritual experience in our own lives, how much more so for these three men who had about the most significant spiritual experience that anyone can have on a mountaintop, right? This was not just a figurative mountaintop experience. This was a literal mountaintop experience where they saw the, the glory of the Lord, the glory with which Christ will come in the future. And you can imagine that would lead to conversations, And we want to think about that glorious event and the aftermath of it that we see here as we continue to think about what Mark is really trying to communicate to us in this section of the gospel. Um, We've talked about how all the way through the end of chapter 10, the real purpose of this section is to explain what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah and what it requires to be identified with him. And the transfiguration has certainly shown them something of what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. What it means for Jesus to be the Son of Man who's been invested with all of this power and honor and glory from his Father. And now to try to continue to make sense of what they've seen. To see him in all that glory. And then to continue to think about what it means for his mission on earth and what it means for them as his disciples they have seen him unveiled who is the son of man that Daniel spoke of the one who's been given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples nations and languages should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed that's who he is And yet, he keeps talking about dying. He keeps talking about suffering and rejection and death. And this is going to be an opportunity for the disciples to try to make sense of how those things fit together. How does it fit together, what we've seen on the mountain and what he keeps saying to us? And it's that struggle that they're really going through, and it's that what Jesus really explains to them. That the one who is so majestic in power and honor and glory is the same one who will suffer many things and be rejected and die. And after his death rise again. Um, Right now, for the disciples, these realities are incompatible. They don't seem to fit together. And this section is going to begin to help explain to them and to us how these things fit together. To explain what death and resurrection have to do with the glory of the Son of Man and His kingdom. That's really what's going on here. And so we see this explanation by our Lord really taking place by way of this resurrection discussion that begins our passage as they are talking about the resurrection together. So, first we have a resurrection discussion, then we have restoration confusion, a misunderstanding by the disciples of what the restoration that was to come at the end might look like. And so finally, then our Lord will add a redemption clarification to help us see how these things fit together. That's how we want to think about this text together this morning, the resurrection discussion, the restoration confusion, and the redemption clarification that our Lord provides. Um, So there's a resurrection discussion that begins as they are coming down the mountain. Uh, from this glorious event that they've seen. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Um, As they're coming down and talking about this amongst themselves, Jesus strictly charges them, you're not to tell anyone else about what you've seen until a specific event takes place. And what is that specific event? Until after I have risen from the dead. Jesus is speaking of himself in the third person as the son of man, but he's essentially telling them, until I rise from the dead, don't tell anyone about what you've seen on the mountain. And we're told by Mark that they did what they were told to do by our Lord. He strictly charged them not to say anything about what they'd seen to anyone, um, and they do that. So they kept the matter to themselves. Now, that's no small feat in this gospel. We shouldn't rush over that because there have been any number of people that have been told not to say anything who have then gone on and blabbed it, um, who are told, don't tell anyone what's been done, and then they will go running off telling everybody what's been done. Um, And so this is no small matter that these three disciples actually do what the Lord has called them to do. Um, Whenever we obey the voice of Jesus, that shouldn't be passed over lightly They do what they're supposed to do, they follow the command they've been given, they don't tell anyone what they saw, which must have been hard. Boys and girls, if you saw something that great, you'd want to share it with people. So it must have been difficult for them not to talk about it to anyone else, but the blessing was that there were two other people each one of them could talk to about it. Um, there were two people with them, Peter, James, and John, who had all seen the same thing, and they were allowed to talk about it with each other. And we see hear them having this discussion about what Jesus has said to them, and the discussion seems to center on this business of rising from the dead. Um, that's the discussion that they do. So he says, don't tell anyone what you saw, and they don't tell anyone what they saw, but they, are, they begin discussing among themselves What does this rising from the dead mean? And that's the problem they seem to really have. That seems to be the center of their discussion. What is this from the dead stuff? And how does that work with what we just saw? Because on the one hand, we saw this great vision of triumphant glory, vindication, enthronement, This this wonderful picture of glory, but yet he keeps talking about dying. Right before this in chapter 8, at the end of chapter 8, he had talked about how he would suffer many things and be rejected by the authorities and be violently put to death and after that rise from the dead. And he had told his disciples, "There there are some of you here who will not taste death until you see. Son of Man. After you see the kingdom of God, after it has come in power, and so there's there's these repeated talk about glory, but always coming back to this topic of death, Um, their death, Jesus' death, but also these great pictures of glory, gaining your life. Um, There's talk of crosses and self-denial and losing life, but there's also talk of gaining life and of glory and the Son of Man coming in the glory of His Father with His holy angels. And so glory and death keep bouncing back and forth. And having just seen this greatest expression of glory, the question is in their mind, how does death fit in? What does He mean by this rising from the dead? Now, we we have to kind of put ourselves into their mindset because for us, this side of Christ's cross and resurrection, we know exactly what that means, right? Um, Boys and girls, you could have helped Peter, James, and John at this point explain what this means. If they said to you, what does he mean by this rising from the dead? You could have said, he'll be crucified and then he'll be buried. And on the third day, the stone will be rolled away and he'll come out alive from the grave. That's what he means by the rising from the dead. We know that. But we have the advantage of being on this side of those facts, on this side of that history. The disciples weren't on that side. And for them, it's a hard question because of what they thought about resurrection from the dead. Uh, how it was common to think about the resurrection of the dead at that time. Maybe you can think to that situation where Lazarus has died in John 11, and and Jesus comes to raise Lazarus from the dead, and Martha comes out in her grief, Lazarus' sister, and says, you know, Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. Uh, And Jesus tells her, your brother will rise again. And do you remember how Martha responded to that? She said, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She thought about resurrection the same way Peter, James, and John thought about resurrection. Resurrection is what happens on the last day. Uh, That great day that's promised in Scripture when Messiah comes and restores all things. And you can still see evidence of this way of thinking today if you go to Jerusalem because the city of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount is surrounded by graves. There are graves all over there. And the reason being is because people believe when Messiah returns to restore all things, the dead will be raised. And the closer you are to where the Messiah is when he comes to his temple to raise the dead, you'll be first among those who are raised. And so that's why there are so many graves around Jerusalem. They're they're waiting in the hope of that last day resurrection that the Messiah will bring when he comes. This was, in their mind, an end times event. On the last day, there will be this great resurrection. The resurrection of the dead is that thing that's going to happen when Messiah comes to restore all things. And so when Jesus says resurrection, that's what comes to their mind, just like it came to Martha's mind. The resurrection on the last day okay we we understand that but they also know something else that's supposed to happen before the last day comes which means elijah comes first so they understood yes there's going to be a resurrection on the last day but it's our understanding that before the last day comes elijah will come uh, to do his restoring work preparing the way for the Lord who's coming. And that's how if we understand how they think about the resurrection, we understand why their minds then go to Elijah. Because for us, it might seem like a kind of non-sequitur, things that don't follow one after the other, for them to be talking about the resurrection, and then after discussing the resurrection among themselves, asking Jesus, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Right? If we didn't know how they were thinking, it might seem a strange question to ask. It might not seem to follow on their discussion. But see, in their minds, they're thinking resurrection is what happens on the last day. And we know that before the last day comes, Elijah comes first. So where are we in time and history? If you're talking about a resurrection that's about to happen, does that mean the end is about to happen? And if the end is about to happen, does Elijah have to come first before the end comes? And you can see that be further prompted by them saying, because we just saw Elijah up on the top of the mountain. So where are we? What's what's happening in time and history? Does, Does Elijah... Need to come first? Has Elijah come, come first? Is the last day resurrection about to happen? All of these glorious things that were promised in the scripture. And you see in their minds, but they keep, they keep hearing in this background, what, but what about all this death stuff? Because if Elijah's coming to restore all things, and the great resurrection's about to happen on the last day, and everything's about to be restored, then why are we still talking about suffering and death? In their question, like, what does the rising from the dead, the, from the dead is the thing that really bothers them. Because I think in their minds, the glory of Messiah is just incompatible with suffering and death. Messiah is going to come and be a victor, Messiah is going to come and be a restorer. He's not going to die. These things seem incompatible to them. And that's where they seem to be fixated. What do you mean, from the dead? Does does Elijah come first? How does all this work? And it's through this resurrection discussion that Jesus will bring bring order to their restoration confusion. Because you can see how they don't understand how all of this restoration is supposed to take place if all this suffering and death is supposed to take place. And so they ask this question, does does Elijah come first before all this happens? That's what the scribes say, are they right about that? How should we think about these things? And Jesus brings clarity to this restoration confusion by saying Elijah does come first, but he comes first as the Scripture tells us he comes first, not as it's become thought of in our popular conception. So Jesus is is affirming, yes, everything the Scriptures say about Elijah is true. Everything that the Scriptures say about Elijah comes to pass. Right in verse 12, he said to them, Elijah does come first, To restore all things. He does come first to restore all things. But he says, We've what the scribes have done have failed to tell you properly what the scriptures say Elijah will do. They failed to properly understand his work of restoration. Um, There was a lot of great promises in the scripture about a great messenger who would come to prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Uh, Mark's gospel begins with a with a reminder of the great prophecy of Isaiah about the servant of the Lord who would come to prepare the way. Um, We sang from part of that prophecy uh, just recently in that song we sang. Um, But Mark chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. So Elijah had said there's this messenger that's going to come to prepare the way of the Lord. Malachi had affirmed that in his prophecy. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, the Lord says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. There will be a messenger that will go and prepare the way of the Lord. And then Malachi fleshes out for us who that messenger will be in chapter 4 verses 4 verses 5 and 6. Behold I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. So both Elijah and Malachi were Isaiah and Malachi were shown that there's going to be this great messenger who will come. And then Malachi is given this word. He will be Elijah. Elijah is the one that will come and prepare the way for the great day of the Lord. The great and awesome day of the Lord that's coming. And that was the last word in the Old Testament. uh, To wait for this messenger who was to come. Um, And so you can imagine they were waiting for that that day. Elijah will come first was the great waiting thing people are waiting for he will come then the Lord will come so we're waiting for that great day and in Luke's gospel we read the announcement that was made to Zechariah that the child Elizabeth was going to have was going to be a man they were to name John and he was going to come and do that work that Malachi said the Elijah to come would do So when the angel appeared to Zechariah in Luke chapter 1 and gives him the great news of who is coming into the world, he tells him about his son, and he will turn many of the children to Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared." Here is the angel Gabriel who stands in the presence of the Lord coming and saying, John the Baptist is coming into the world, and John the Baptist is that messenger who was promised. He is the Elijah to come, coming into the world to do this work of restoration. And you remember that Zachariah said, well, how will I know this is true? And he was struck mute because he didn't... Believe, and when his voice was finally restored to him after John was born, he sang the song that we sang this morning. And part of the song he sings is thanking God for what he's going to do through his son John the Baptist. And he says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Uh, The angel said, John the Baptist is Elijah who is to come. Zachariah sings and celebrates that John the Baptist is going to be the Elijah who is to come. And Jesus himself confirms this in Matthew 11:13 to 14, "For all the prophets and the, law, and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come." And so in this discussion, when Elijah is mentioned, we can read in John the Baptist. Um, John the Baptist is the one who comes in the spirit of Elijah. He is the Elijah to come that was prophesied, who does the great work of restoration. And Jesus is saying, everybody talking about Elijah coming first, they were all right that he comes before the great and awesome day of the Lord. What they really didn't understand was what is the work of restoration that Elijah does when he comes? What is the work that John the Baptist does in the spirit of Elijah? He does a work of restoration through repentance. That is the work of restoration he does, to make a people prepared to meet the Lord through repentance. So Mark in chapter 1, after talking about what John the Baptist will do in the spirit of Elijah, says he will come, after quoting the prophecy of Isaiah, says John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The work he does is a spiritual restoration. He came doing the work that God had called him to do, the great work of preparation for the Lord's coming, which was to call people to repentance and to find forgiveness of their sins in the one who was coming. So Jesus is saying Elijah does come first. John the Baptist has come and done the work that the prophet said Elijah would do when he comes. It's a glorious work. It's a work of restoration. It's a work that did turn the hearts of many in Israel to the Lord their God by repentance through faith. Um, Pointing them to the Savior who was coming and saying, I baptize you with water for the repentance of your sins, uh, but the one who is coming is far greater than I am. He will baptize you not with water, but with the Spirit and power. I'm not fit to tie his shoes. And when he comes, I must diminish and he must increase. He was pointing forward to the Lord who was coming. And so Jesus is entering into their restoration confusion first to say, you really need to understand the work of restoration. That it was a spiritual restoration that John the Baptist provided, coming in the spirit of Elijah. And then Jesus says, and it's important that you understand that that's the work he did when you think also about how he was treated when he came and did that work. Because this is going to connect Jesus' work and how his glory and his suffering fit together. Because he has just said, you know, you were asking about the glorious work of Elijah. John the Baptist came and did that work. And then he says in verse 13, but I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it was written of him. Right? John came and did that great promised work of restoration that Elijah was supposed to do when he came, that great spiritual work of restoration. It was a glorious work, fulfilling this wonderful role. And Jesus said, And how did they treat him? What did they do to this one? Who gloriously performed this work that God's people were waiting for and that the prophets had talked about? What did they do to him? They treated him and did to him whatever they pleased. It's an expression, it's a way of saying they exercised arbitrary and absolute power over him. He performed this glorious work, and how was he received? He was persecuted, he was arrested, and he was executed. Not because he was tried and found guilty. He was arrested and executed because they didn't like what he had to say. And he was beheaded for a party favor at a party Herod was holding. And so he comes and did this glorious work. And how did they receive him? They treated him however they pleased. And he suffered and he died. There is the connection between glory and death. What Jesus is saying, you see how those two were not incompatible in the life of John. He was faithful unto death. He did the great work of the restorer. But that's really the connection with Elijah that Jesus is saying to his disciples, you're missing. Because when the first Elijah came, he was a glorious restorer of the old covenant in Israel. And everybody loved him and celebrated his coming, right? No, what was his plea with the Lord towards the end of his life? His plea was, I alone am left. They're trying to kill me. They've killed every other prophet. I'm the only one that's left, and there's another king and queen who seek to take my life. Right? Elijah lived his life persecuted by a weak king and a wicked queen. The weak king Ahab and the wicked queen Jezebel. That's how John the Baptist met his end. At the hands of a weak king Herod and a wicked queen Herodias. He did come in the spirit and power of Elijah, doing great work of restoration and also suffering and dying on account of his work. And what Jesus is saying to his disciples is, you see how glory is not incompatible with suffering and death. Not only are they not incompatible, they're connected. Why did John suffer and die? Because he was doing the will of the Lord because he preached repentance to sinners who didn't want to hear it. He preached repentance to wicked people, King Herod, who didn't want to hear what he had to say, didn't want to listen to the word he preached, and his queen who hated him for saying it. And you see how Jesus is helping them understand the relationship between faithfully serving the Lord and the glory of faithfully serving him and the fact that suffering and death are not only incompatible with that, but connected to it. He suffered and died because he was Elijah. He suffered and died because he did the work that God had called him to do. And Jesus relates that to his own mission and ministry by saying, and how is it written of the son of man that he should suffer many things and be, and be treated with contempt. You know, Jesus, in a sense, is saying to his disciples, John the Baptist proves the truth of what I told you. That if anyone would come after me, he has to deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. And that those who lose their lives for my sake will find them. And those who bear the shame of the world will be honored by the Son of Man when He returns in glory with His holy angels. They hated John, and he suffered and died on account of their hatred. But why did they hate him? Because he did what the Lord had called him to do. It was because he was for the Lord and for His word that he suffered and died. And even though he was despised by the local authorities and killed for what he did, he was honored by the Lord. He completed the work the Lord gave him to do. He did a great work of restoration, turning many in Israel to the Lord their God through repentance and made them a a people prepared to meet the Lord Jesus Christ. And what honor did the Lord Jesus Christ give John his faithful servant. He said in Matthew chapter 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. You see how Jesus is saying to his disciples, You're confused because you think somehow glory and suffering are not related. That if the Son of Man is truly glorious, how can he also suffer and die? He says, You see those things as disconnected but they're actually connected to one another. John the Baptist died because he was for the Lord and for his word. He suffered and died and yet he fulfilled the glorious role that he had been given. And Jesus is using that example of of John, the Elijah to come to point to himself and to say, how much more is it true That if Elijah, who was to come, has restored all things and suffered and died, is glorified for what he's done and yet suffered and died, how much more true is that for the Son of Man? How much more true is what was written of Elijah true of the Son of Man? That he will come and suffer many things and be rejected and die and on the third day rise again. He will be treated with contempt, just as John was treated with contempt. Right. They will do to the Son of Man whatever they please, just as they did to John. Right. Jesus will be arrested, he'll be tried, he'll be declared not guilty, then he'll be executed. Not to do any kind of justice, but to placate a bloodthirsty mob. They will do to him whatever they please. It's the same kind of thing. But even though John dies as a servant, Jesus dies as a Lord. John dies in service of the Lord. Jesus dies as the Lord, accomplishing God's redemptive purposes through his death. Accomplishing redemption through his righteous life, through his sacrificial death, through his glorious resurrection. He is still the glorious Son of Man in vindication and enthronement, they saw. But his suffering is not disconnected from that. They're not incompatible. They're connected. The Lord in glory they see on the Mount of Transfiguration is enthroned and vindicated in that glory because of what he suffers and dies to do. Because of the work he did in sacrificial death is why he's so exalted by the Father. He's so glorified. And Jesus wants his disciples, Peter, James, and John, to understand that, that suffering and death are not disconnected from glory. They need to understand that for Jesus. They also need to understand that for themselves, that suffering and death are not disconnected from glory, that suffering and dying for the sake of the Lord and his word is not disconnected from glory. Glory. Um, talking about the transfiguration and the message it means to communicate. I mentioned Hal Jones' fantastic book on this, but he says at one point, the transfiguration was intended to convince the disciples that Jesus was going to die because he was God's king. And though they were going to die too, they belonged to his kingdom. Um, He suffered and died because he was the king not somehow disconnected from it, but because of that. And Peter, James, and John, as they went forward at his, as his disciples, for him, for his word, would need to understand that that was why they were going to suffer and die too. James and Peter were both martyred for the faith. Acts 15 talks about James being killed by another Herod with the sword. He was the first of the apostles to be martyred for the faith. Peter also, according to what we know from church history, was martyred in Rome, was crucified there for serving the Lord. We know that John lived a long life. He didn't die a martyr, but he lived a long life. And because he lived a long life in service of Christ and of his kingdom, he suffered much in service as an apostle. They would need to understand the connection Right, to not find themselves in a place saying, I thought I was part of this glorious kingdom of the Lord. Why am I suffering and dying the way I am? So they would never disconnect those things, but see the connection. They hate you because you serve the Lord and his word. They're killing you because you belong to his glorious kingdom. He loves you, that's why they hate you. His disciples needed to understand that connection for him and for themselves, His disciples today still need to understand that connection. Um, I know we're coming to the end of, of our sermon, but it's important for us not to miss how this applies to all of us who serve the Lord, because I think this connection between glory of being part of God's kingdom and also suffering and even being called to die for Christ and for His words in this world can still be a disconnect for the church today. That we wonder why, if we're God's people, these things happen to us. We get surprised when the world hates God's church and rejects his word and heaps shame on those who would follow him and even persecutes and kills his people every day. There are more Christians being martyred for the faith now than at any point in in world history. Just because it's not happening to us in, in this country, it still is happening to our brothers and sisters in the world in greater numbers than has ever been the case ever before. And there can be a temptation by the church to react in the same way the disciples do. How do we connect suffering with glory? How do we understand this? Does this mean somehow we're not part of the glorious kingdom, or isn't the glorious kingdom incompatible with this kind of suffering? Shouldn't things be getting better in every way and every day for us? Shouldn't we be experiencing health and wealth and happiness all the time? I think that's why those kinds of false gospels have so much appeal in the world, because we like hearing that as opposed to, pick up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me, and the world will hate you um, and will shame you on account of your belonging to me and holding to my words. But what Jesus is reminding all of his disciples in every age, there's always going to be a they who will do to you whatever they please. As Mark's first audience read this, they knew who the they was in their day. Um, The the Christians in Rome who first received this gospel knew who who was doing to them whatever they pleased. It was the Roman authorities. And Jesus is reminding us the church in every age will have a they who does to us whatever they please. And what Jesus is helping us to do is say, don't disconnect the glory of who you are from what you might suffer for my name and for my sake. You suffer because you belong to me. They hate you because you serve me. We should never disconnect those two things in our mind. They are connected. They are inseparably connected. Because after giving that great word about who John the Baptist was, never greater is anyone than John the Baptist who's arisen from among men. What does Jesus go on to say? Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist, right? The least of us in the kingdom of God as believers are great in God's sight. There's a great glory in that. And whatever we are called to suffer or even die for the sake of the Lord and his words in this world is not disconnected from that glory, but connected to it. If we suffer for him, it's because we're connected to him. If we suffer for his words because we're connected to to that word. Suffering and glory are not incompatible. And so, what do we do in the meantime? We do what the writer of Hebrews has called us to do. We look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. That you may not grow weary or faint hearted. We face their hostility by meditating on the fact that they're treating us the way they treated the Lord. And how did he endure? He looked ahead, he looked past the hostility and the cross to the joy and to the glory. And if we don't want to grow weary or faint hearted, that's what we have to do. Look past what we might suffer for Christ and for his name and for his word and look towards the joy and the glory because this doesn't last. The suffering doesn't last. The joy lasts. The glory lasts. And may we hold that before our eyes. and May it help us not to grow weary or faint-hearted. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the blessing of being reminded by our Lord that suffering is not disconnected from glory, that whatever your church is called to suffer in this world like our Lord himself, we suffer because we are connected to him. He suffered because he was the king to redeem sinners and to accomplish our salvation by his perfect life and sacrificial death and glorious resurrection. And we follow after him. And so help us to keep those things in mind when we endure hostility to think to how he endured and how he overcame and how he is sitting at your right hand even now, interceding for us. And may that vision of joy and lasting glory help us to endure our crosses and despise their shame and think about when we will be seated with you in glory. Speed that day, we pray, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.